Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Mickey Noonan and I can only continue to apologise for my attempts at an Irish accent in the Sunday chops. But uh, Mrs Doyle made me do it, to be sure. Oh God. Sorry, (laughs) again, sorry. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I fell over the turn up of my pyjamas and down the stairs last week because I'm obviously 80. I love that you have turn ups on your pyjamas. Can you not get shorter pyjamas? Problem with pyjamas and me, Jen, is the length of my legs. Shorter pyjamas would be children's pyjamas. All trousers, even short leg trousers, come over the bottom Can of I my feet. Like, tack you some hems or some shit. My mum is insisting on coming round to turn up my pajamas yeah. properly by stitching them. Yeah, well, that's what tacking your hems meant. It right, wasn't okay. like a weird. I, I, I thought that was like a proposition from Jen. So it's the answer is obviously yes. <laughs> it's bold to do it on the podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the secret's out. You've all heard it now. <laughs> I'm Jen Ufford and I'm really hungry. Later on, Jen eats a sandwich and we ch- <laughs> <laughs> Later on, we chat to author Jean Hannah Edelstein about Lynch Syndrome and her book, This Really Isn't About You. Mick and I went for a pint with drunk women solving crime and Dottie Winters tells us the pros and cons of the adoption process. I talked to running blogger Emma Bramwell about her 30 for 30 challenge. And I do Disney's Coco. But first, a slap in the face for the word justice, sugary snacks and toilet paper. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where, like Melania Trump, we'd ask you to focus on what we do rather than what we wear. Which is slightly easier in this instance, since we actually do stuff. (laughs) Welcome to Gilead, Associate Justice Brett Kavanagh. We think you'll be fucking delighted with the place, you shuddering helmet. No doubt you and Clarence Thomas will become BFFs forever. Yep, America took another step forward in women's rights going backwards this weekend with the appointment of the staunchly conservative, very much anti-abortion rights, federal judge Brett Kavanagh to the Supreme Court. Unless you've been in a bin for the last couple of weeks, you'll have seen slash heard the bitter struggle of Kavanagh's ascent to this lofty new position. If we can leave the compelling allegations of sexual assault from Professor Christine Blasey Ford and two other women aside for the moment, and it seems the majority of the US Senate found that a piece of piss, then surely Kavanaugh's embarrassing behaviour during his questioning should have been enough to cost him the job. He bawled, he raged, he interrupted and generally made a right show of himself. But if more proof were needed, spoiler, it wasn't, that no one gives a shit about women when control, cash and white male privilege are at stake... This was deemed fitting behaviour of someone who now holds one of the most powerful positions in the US. Oh, and uh, what, what, what's that, Brett? You don't believe it should be possible to indict a sitting president? Hmm, interesting. Clearly nothing to do with your nomination by sitting President Donald Trump at all. Because what would a sitting president accused of sexual assault by more than a dozen women have to gain from that? It's a mystery. Kavanaugh's appointment isn't just worse times for women. It's also a slap in the face for refugees, the rights of people of colour, voting rights, reproductive rights, Native American rights. Oh, and finally, always worth saying, I believe her. Oh, God. I saw my mum on Sunday morning and the first thing she said to me was, God, you look really tired. I was like, that's because I just couldn't stop watching on Saturday night on the news, just people being dragged off by the police for protesting and what I will say, a really reassuring amount of men being dragged off protesting this. It beggars belief 
Donald Trump saying that he thought the women would be relieved because they would be thinking about their sons, oh. their husbands, their uncles and others. And I actually rang my brother and said, good news, mate, you can go out a raping and it won't affect your career. I'm delighted for you. And he was like, what? <laughs> he hadn't been on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, what a week. But good news last week for mixed sex couples who don't want to get married but want all the legal benefits of being married when Theresa May announced they could now enter into a civil partnership. Much like same-sex couples could, back when we were still parceling out their rights like the rest of us had any sort of moral (laughs) authority on anything. I say good news, but the announcement got a mixed reception with some people wondering what the point of it was, really. And possibly because, you know, given the all-round state of civil rights around the world right now, it is hard to get worked up about something that will only really benefit heterosexual homeowners with a philosophy on marriage. You know, that said, I'm probably not the best person to voice an opinion on that, given I find the idea of having a boyfriend a bit much. (laughs) The hottest of all the hot takes came from Sir Edward Lee, Conservative MP for Gainsborough. Gainsborough is in Lincolnshire, by the way. I mention that because if you didn't know it, at least something about me having to mention this clown and his wild views will be in some way edifying. Anywho, Sir Edward tweeted, Mixed sex civil partnerships to be legalised. Why not for siblings too? If you're wondering if this is all (laughs) part of some slippery slope argument that implies a road that begins with two women getting wed can only end with enforced marriage between a family's eldest son and a Muslim pigeon, you'd only be half right. Sir Edward went on, Why should siblings who've lived together for years have to pay estate duty when one dies? See Lord Lexon's bill earlier this year. Oh yes, it's about the money. Who'd have thought it? But it appears that not paying tax is preferable to not being married to your brother. I repeat, paying tax. Boo. Shacking up with a sibling. Woohoo! <laughs> but seriously, boo fucking who? I saw an interview with two sisters who would like to get married. Oh, I saw that interview as well. Yeah. We've all done it. <laughs> but what I find staggering about that is it's presented like it's a human rights issue. And basically what they're saying is I'd like to not have to pay tax on what I inherit. I'm going to inherit such a huge amount of money from this other person that I'm going to have to sell my house to pay the inheritance tax. Lots of people have to sell their houses and downgrade when they're old. It's a thing. If you open up this incredible tax loophole that basically says you can civil partnership anyone then people would technically be able to marry anyone in order just to leave them their money and avoid paying tax. And also, if they're in smaller houses, maybe the housing crisis wouldn't be so bad. Just run out there. Don't come in here with your logic on it. <laughs> and also, they'd wanted. be able to afford some, like, care for themselves in their old age. Because theoretically, I suppose, I should be able to marry my mother so that if she leaves me something, I don't have to pay inheritance tax. Not that my mum's got enough to actually kick in inheritance tax. I need to say. Your mum is fit, though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she is. She's a a looker. Oh, God, it would be grey gardens within 20 seconds if her and I were living together. Um, And it was banter clock for Prime Minister Theresa May last week as she sashayed on stage at the Tory party conference. Hannah's face. Honestly, I actually did talk about this to my mum yesterday and my mum actually put her hands over her ears and said, I can't listen, I can't think about it. It was awful. (laughs) We need to put our hands over our eyes stop watching it. Someone tweeted a little video clip of, of her doing it and they commented on it, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. I saw it and my immediate reaction was, a wooga! <laughs> 
She was demonstrating the same sick move she'd busted out on her recent networking trip in Africa. I'm calling it a networking trip because that's basically what it was, isn't it? Anyway, she showed her human side again and her and her pals had a right ruddy chuckle about how much they hate poor people. Sorry, I mean that other time she made a twat out of herself at last year's conference. God, is that only a year ago? Yeah. Oh, God. And probably also how much they hate poor people. (laughs) and possibly the unfeasibility that she should still be in power a year later. Meanwhile, her political rival and boo-fronted bellend Boris Johnson gave it his best shot to steal the limelight by appearing to troll the PM, getting himself snapped jogging through a wheat field, which almost certainly isn't the naughtiest thing he's ever done, as both of his ex-wives will no doubt testify. But it was Teabag who took back control, just like the referendum voters back in 2016, as she announced the end of austerity. How much do we believe that? Did she say, is the letter Y? (laughs) That would be the end of austerity. Is the letter Y? (laughs) That's the only time it would be reasonable from Theresa May. She also reckons she's going to sort out the housing crisis, fix the NHS, and she also appealed to Labour voters to back her moderate course. She is like 2am May. Right? <laughs> 2am May is going to go jogging tomorrow. They're going to give up smoking. They're going to go on a diet. They're going to remember to ring their mother regularly. and all. It's not in any way grounded in reality, is it? No. Let's be, let's be honest. And, and also, there's nothing very moderate about this current political shitstorm, is there? Congratulations to Nadia Murad and Dennis McQuaigie, winners of this year's Nobel Peace Prize, which was awarded to the anti-rape activists for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war. I think we can all agree that is a good thing. Quite. Round of applause. Ms Murad is an Iraqi Yazidi who was tortured and raped by Islamic State militants and later became the face of a campaign to free the Yazidi people. Dr. Mugwege is a Congolese gynaecologist, which is quite the tongue tripper, <laughs> who, along with his colleagues, has treated tens of thousands of victims. Dr. Mugwege, known as Dr. Miracle for his reconstructive surgery abilities, dedicated his award to all the women affected by sexual violence. Ms. Murad and Dr. Mugwege faced tough competition for the prestigious award. Ahead of last Friday's results, the bookies favourites out of the 331 individuals and organisations nominated for the, and it's worth saying I've noted this in capital letters, Peace Prize, included Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Um, I don't know about you, but I am gutted one of these didn't take it. I think that was Farage. Was it not Farage that nominated a couple of months ago, Farage was going on about how Donald Trump should win it, and I don't know if they where they take nominations. The from. House of Republicans nominated Trump. Oh, okay. Uh, so you know, a load of other white. They don't even believe that themselves, do they? No. I mean, if, if America at the moment is proof of anything, it's that that doesn't matter. Oh. Another congratulations, though, because earlier in the week, the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to Dr. Donna Strickland, only the third woman winner of the award and the first in fifty-five years. Nice one, Dr. Donna. But Noble Panel and STEM, please pull your socks up. I was thinking about what I was going to do for my second story, and there's loads of way more important stuff sort of in the scheme of things. Not least McStrike, which, you know, well done those people. Weatherspoons, McDonald's staff, should be paid properly. No two ways about it. Mm-hmm. But I keep coming back to this thing where Donald Trump walked up the steps of an aeroplane with what did look like toilet paper, but transpired to just be some other form of paper stuck to the bottom of his shoe. Now, this is a thing that can happen to anyone, right? <laughs> Except it can't really, because when you have something stuck to the bottom of your shoe, 
you know, and you're just a person who's by themselves getting out of your car. And if you've got a car that looks like my car or, you know, like most comedians, like basically a travelling skip, it's quite possible to get out and have like a mug of coffee attached to the back of your shoe and without you realising it. But he is the president. There are people around him who are supposed to make sure that stupid things like this don't happen. So there's only two possible options of what has happened here. The first option is that nobody cares. Nobody gives a fuck whether he walks up the stairs with a leaflet stuck to the bottom of his shoe. Or the second option is that somebody told him and he didn't believe them. <laughs> Fake news. What, what else is there? How did that happen? And with all this stuff that's been going on in America, I did the thing that it was so bad on Saturday night that I did that thing that I always do in times of crisis. I looked at photographs of Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, Hannah, that's delightful. It helps. Okay. It really does. And I... So I'm thinking about this story about Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. Do you know the story about the River of Doubt? No. It's an incredibly hyperbolic story about an incredibly hyperbolic man that Teddy Roosevelt was. He ended up president because McKinley was assassinated. So he ended up... He was, I believe, the youngest ever president they've had. And therefore, he retired incredibly young. He suffered very badly from depression. And he believed that the way through depression was through constant activity. So he was basically then a man in his middle mid-40s who basically his career had come to an end. So he decided to do... This is in early 1910s. He decided to do something quite extraordinary, which was somebody in Brazil had discovered a river in the Amazon basin. They called it the River of Doubt. They didn't know anything about it. And he decided he was going to set off on an expedition to discover it. Almost immediately, it went incredibly badly wrong. Within about the first 20 minutes, everybody had malaria. When they were going down the river, the sort of native tribes were harassing them, not letting them land their boat. You know, when they did land, they stole their stuff, they set their stuff on fire. One of their boats turned over and one of the people he was with drowned and then he went into the water and he ended up with a badly cut leg that was so badly infected they had to operate on it. To cut his leg open and basically leave an open wound for the entire rest of the time. He could barely walk. One of his guides shot one of the other guides and then ran off, so they were basically left kind of guideless. Oh, when I say they, I feel the need to point out that he had his son, Kermit. Yeah, this is the story that keeps on giving with him. <laughs> Kermit had suffered from both of the Roosevelt illnesses, which was mental health and alcoholism, and he had decided it would make a man of him to take his early 20-year-old son on this expedition with him. Eventually they get to a waterfall. They obviously can't go down it. They head off. They're four months wandering around in the wilderness before they're picked up by a rescue party. And at this point, he had to walk with a cane for the rest of his life. He'd lost about a third of his body weight. And I thought, whatever happens to Donald Trump after this, if he gets impeached, if well, they should just make him and Don Jr., or probably Eric, it'd be even better, just do that. That should be the punishment <laughs> for Donald Trump. They can make it a reality TV programme. They basically have to do the length of the River of Doubt. Can you imagine what his wild hair? And then they could have, like, Bear Grylls in a studio saying... What Donald's done wrong here is he's attempted to eat that snake and it's actually poisonous. Let's see what's going to happen. Anyway, if anybody's looking for a reality TV show, that's the way forward. 
Yeah, you're right. There there were lots of stories to talk about this week, and indeed there could have been lots of serious ones, but... It's just too depressing. It's just so depressing. <laughs> There's a report out today, actually, I don't know if you saw it, Plan International, about the uh, percentage of girls in their school uniforms who have been sexually harassed on the street. It's I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's it's very high. It's, it's also more than zero, right? It's, it's troublingly way more high. Than zero. There was also a vaguely horrifying story about a young girl who was told that in order to leave class she would have to have a doctor letters from her doctor and she bled through all her clothes because she wasn't allowed to leave class to go to the bathroom I'd like to hear about some donuts, please. Yes. <laughs> Would anyone like to hear about some donuts? Yes, okay with donuts, Jen, given that you are well oh, hungry. Oh, God, don't. <laughs> and we returned to Ireland this week, in spirit, if not in body, for further proof that he, or indeed she, really does give up with one hand and with the other very much taketh away. Ireland's first ever Krispy Kreme was forced to close after excited fans of sugary snacks whipped themselves into such a frenzy that its 24-hour drive-through resulted in noise complaints last week. Yeah, a lot of honking going on. CEO of Krispy Kreme UK and Ireland, Richard Cheshire, said the response to the store's opening was, and I quote, way ahead of our most optimistic (laughs) expectations. Adding... The smiles and joy have been great to see. But residents of the Blanchardstown suburb of Dublin were unimpressed by the disturbance caused by hours-long queues of vehicles honking their horns as they awaited their doughy fix. It sounds like joy. It sounds like hanger. Agitation, yeah. Hanger, something I can currently relate to. (laughs) But not all was lost. As rather than permanent closure, Krispy Kreme announced changes to the drive-thru's opening hours in response to complaints. And sugar fiends can only expect to be served crispy treats between the hours of 6am and 11.30pm. Which is still quite quite a long time mm. to be hearing that noise if you live nearby. And also, you really shouldn't be eating something that sugary so close to bedtime, should you? Hannah, I think you've got some thoughts on this kind yeah, of donut. Yeah, these donuts are shit. I don't... I, I, what? I'm very angry that in the old days, donuts used to be like these round things with a hole yeah. in that had sugar on or just this thing with jam in the oh, middle. Oh, the jam. Do you know how difficult it is to get one of those donuts now? Mate. Because every fucking shop has decided to put this Krispy Kreme stand in that's basically got diarrhoea-covered topping and hundreds of thousands on every donut. Those donuts are the worst donuts more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we wonder if it's possible to report Twitter to Twitter. Because over on that moral compass and bastion of moderation in 280 characters or less, what's OK and not OK to say to people seems to have got a tad confused. I say a tad... When actually what I mean is that rape threats are deemed absolutely hunky-dory, as you were, no harm done, but call someone a coward for threatening you and it's time out in the sin bin, you nefarious scamp. Jessica Eaton, a woman doing a lot of good when it comes to helping curb victim blaming and research into sexual violence through victim focus, and also supporting men in need via the Eaton Foundation, is no stranger to getting horrific shit on the internet. Indeed, she reports one man sending her headless pictures of herself that he said he'd been wanking over. And by reports, I mean she actually reported it to Twitter. Apparently, it didn't violate community guidelines of acceptable Twitter behaviour. However, when Eaton took an abusive tweeter to task by calling him a coward for saying he'd like to spit in her face, Twitter put her on a timeout. It is, to put it mildly, bullshit. 
Eaton's case is not a one-off, not even on Eaton's timeline. Online abuse and harassment is a widespread problem that affects everyone, male or female. Absolutely. But research shows it disproportionately affects women. And yet the rape threats just keep coming and keep being allowed to stay. Why Twitter fails to see misogynistic abuse as abuse worth tackling is anyone's guess. And my guess is misogyny. What? Want to know what you can do to help? If you spot an abusive tweet, report it. It seems that Twitter takes more notice when it comes from the person not on the receiving end. (sighs) More sexism next week. And every day until then. Hello, Jen here. Sorry to interrupt your uh, podcasting joy time. (laughs) Okay, having a (laughs) wank. This isn't scripted. Can you believe it? (laughs) If you'd like to see us as well as hear us, and I'm quite sure you do, why don't you get yourself along to one of our gig casts? We have got some absolute bangers coming up, including on October the 28th, June Sarpong, Lisa Riley and Stacey Solomon. On November the 20th, we don't think we hear enough from men in the world, so we've invited a few along to help celebrate International Men's Day. And those men are Richard Herring, Colin Jackson and David Morrissey. And then for our final London gig of the year, we've got a fantastic lineup of Lolly Adafopi, Felicity Ward and Laura Bates. And that's on December the 16th. So get yourself over to our page on Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. You can find out all about what we've got coming up in our gigs and how you can get tickets. Hello, it's Mickey here. Hannah and I are in a pub in Leicester Square, which, by the way, is mental in the daytime. Don't ever go there. With two out of three of the drunk women solving crime, we have Hannah George. Hello. And Taylor Glenn. Hi there. And can one of you do an impression of Katie Wilkins? Hello, it's Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Katie, I love you so much. <laughs> I just thought, like, I'm British, I yeah. could probably do a better It is impression. a little bit high-pitched, though, like, yeah! Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's very so agreeable. Much. She's very agreeable. With lunchtime drinking, because it's thematic with your podcast. Thank you. Uh, tell us more about it. Thanks for being on brand. We appreciate <laughs> it. Oh, it's a struggle, but <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Well, we are a true crime comedy podcast, uh, and as you mentioned, there are three of us who started it, Hannah George, myself, and Katie Wilkins, and yeah. each time, <laughs> yes, poor Katie, oh my god. We love Katie, Katie, we, we love, love Katie too, she's the best of all of us, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we always have a, a guest each time, and they hail either from the world of comedy, acting, music, we're going to have some true crime writers coming on but the idea is it's a three-part format hannah you're good with formats describe the format the first part of the format is that we ask our guest if they've ever been victim of a crime and it's bringing up some amazing stories and also because it's all women on the podcast women are pretty likely to be victims of crime and there have just been some amazing ones and then we take on a true crime story it's something that's actually happened often in the olden timey days you know because it's a comedy podcast and we don't want to do anything that's kind of like you know in the news right now historical Um, crime yeah and they can be like corsets and arsenic which is quite sexy Uh, and um, sexy crime yeah no it's really different (laughs) That's what we're avoiding. Um, We're all trying to avoid it. And with the solving crimes uh, aspect of it, we uh, do it sort of as a quiz, you know, there'll be sort of like, right, this is basically what the crime is. Do you think this was committed by a man or a woman? Where do you think this was committed? At what time frame was this committed? Yeah. And it's interesting. 
kind of like Cluedo. Yes, it was Doctor Crippen in London <laughs> with the sledgehammer. He's the he's the, the brains behind so many crimes, yeah. Doctor Crippen. He's a great guy. <laughs> he's not, but that's coming up soon. The uh, Doctor Crippen episode with Felicity Montague, who is just, it's great because people come in with different ideas about how they want to sort of handle the true crime. So Felicity was a hardcore profiler. Oh I mean, she had diagnosed this man yeah, from experience, Montague. I believe, within uh-huh. like 30 seconds, and then she just kept coming back to it. It was amazing. And I think was, she was spot on. Yeah, sometimes like, I'm sort of worried that, like, because sometimes we do cold cases, and part of me thinks, I think one day we're really going to crack one, which would be well, this great. has been happening a lot recently, because obviously there's a true crime craze that's been going on, and a lot of podcasts and series have actually helped push cases forward that have just gone crazy. Oswald's wife, who died. Yes, yeah. Apparently cracked the Golden State Killer case by working on it as a cold case. Wrote a book about it. Am I right? Am I making Yes, you are, you are, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure what her background was in terms of being sort of anything to do with the police or anything or whether she's just a writer with an interest yeah and like and actually in a way that's sometimes all you, all you need there's so much online that you can go back and you can read case files from because mm, yeah. there comes a certain point where they have to publicise yeah stuff and that becomes really interesting well, have you seen The Keepers the Netflix oh the nuns one yeah ah I watched and that a was, bit of that. was two women who were retired and thought let's start a project who killed our teacher yeah. what they uncovered right. was like basically institutionalised abuse it was huge right. the case that they had. I love it my mum's retiring soon and I'm really going to sort of push her in that direction well, I'm, I'm going to be like trying you need work something else <laughs> yeah. I, think I in vigilante. Hannah and was like mate I know what we're doing when you know this all goes to shit <laughs> we are going to wear tweed and solve crime <laughs> and she is bang up for it I am it's fun because it is amazing like the guests that we have on it's so funny because you're like so who do you think and they're like it's this person immediately because of this and people are super clever it's amazing how maybe it's because we all grew up watching Jonathan Creek and Midsummer Murders or you know all of that sort of stuff but everyone thinks they're a proper good detective yeah Um, and I do definitely but I'm not but yeah, I think that's fun. where the drink part comes in too. Yeah. And unusually, we started with a title and then worked out the format because Katie had been holding on to this title for a while. She's like, I don't know what it is. I'm not sure where she came up with it, but she's like, it's just a brilliant title. And unsurprisingly, we came up with the concept in a pub. And we started just taking turns, kind of looking up cases. The more drunk we got, the more we felt like we had these amazing skills. And then somebody <laughs> just gave us the platform. We could go over old cases that have been gone over before. <laughs> and damn it, I'm, that's all we do. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, the third part of the format is that we take in a listener crime. So often they can be quite low-key, like someone stealing your cheese from your fridge at work, or it can be somebody's killed your hamster in cold blood. You know, it's, it's, it's things like that. And we offer... We offer some really, really great advice and insight, um, <laughs> don't we, Taylor? <laughs> well, I think we set out to offer really good advice. Uh, Catherine Ryan did our first episode, which was amazing to have her it on. It is amazing. And she was very patient with us, like, testing out the format for the very first time. We're like, hey. And when it got to that crime, yes, it was about stolen cheese. And we're like, yeah, maybe you just need a bigger label. Like, we're being all nice. And she just, like, cut through the shit. And she's like, Nicole's a Tory. She's a messy bitch who lives for drama. And she just got, like, you know, in the way that only Catherine Ryan can. we're like, oh, this is fun. This is actually really fun. So, yeah, now when people have had some, you know, they've had a crime committed against them and they write in, we tend to take the piss out of them more than actually help. But it's fun. I think that's a better way of doing it. Having listened to a few, despite the fact that you 
will refer to the fact that you are drunk and that sometimes you say that's like that thing where and then you can't remember what it is you want to say you actually mm-hmm. don't come across as being particularly drunk and yet you I know. clearly are because Gronya tweeted the other day that she, she was she was um, she she trying to it. pull the man making her boyfriend's subway sandwich <laughs> and then fell asleep in the corner <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is most nights for Gronya though so. <laughs> no but the thing is I think it's not going to be fun listening to sort of four people absolutely leathered we do enough to take the uh, take the edge off and we right. get sent loads of free beer from those different companies we're not absolutely smashed because I mean you've hung out with smashed people before they're yeah. not a lot of fun and also we um, record two episodes in one night so the second so episode drunk, is yeah. always Ooh, more drunk you can always yeah. tell the second episode yeah. but I've been amazed when I am dr- the hardest part is if I'm hosting because we alternate hosting jobs and I just find it so hard to read like I can kind of bullshit when <laughs> yeah. I'm drunk but I'm trying to read this like really detailed stuff an episode that we're releasing soon which will be out by the time you hear this I mm. guess I had to pronounce all these Japanese names and I would yeah. just stare at them like, oh, I'm going to fuck this up. This is really bad. Yeah. It's when, calling Jeff. But I'm He's amazed Jeff. how much we can just kind of put it on a little bit because of the pressure of like, well, I want to sound coherent. And you can yes. only catch the little moments where it it's is, like, oh, yeah, you were pretty you were pretty hammered that time. Sorry, London's in the background. <laughs> I'm wondering what that is. It is the city of London. What's fun is our producer will keep in the best bits where we slur. Because I find, like, the very beginning when we introduce the guest, I just always stumble if I've had a few drinks. I'm like, it's great to have you. <laughs> and she'll just keep that in. You know when you go home, like, when you're a teenager and you're drunk and you have to do the proper talking to your parents, yeah. pretend you're not as drunk exactly, as you are? When yes. you're presenting, you're definitely, I'm, like, trying to be, like, because you're mum in that, you know, in yeah. that sort of thing. You're, like... You have to make sure this thing is working. Oh my that. god, you just nailed it. We have drunk women playing sober. That's yeah. what we are. I did yeah. that thing of going home when I was about 15 and I was absolutely hammered, and then knowing that my mum was still up because I was hammered by 9 pm because I was 15, <laughs> and deciding that I could get away with this and just going, Hello, mother. Never called a mother before in my life. And she's like, Hello, daughter. And I was like, How's your evening been? Oh and she god. immediately knows that I am off my chops. And then I proceed to have a quite what I thought a coherent chat with her and then decided I should take off my caterpillar boots to show up the 90s by <laughs> lifting my leg in the air and doing it stood up on one leg and immediately just toppled and I don't think she rumbled sounds it. Victorian <laughs> like mother hello mother <laughs> were you always interested in true crime or now that you're doing it are you more interested I'm definitely more interested in it now. Like, we've done some quite well-known cases that I haven't necessarily known the ins and outs of, but I got on board with true crime with making a murderer, and I was just fascinated by that. But what really got me is there is all this research about how women are now the biggest consumers of true crime, and the theory is that because we are... Walking around in fear a lot of the yeah. time, and we're taught very mixed things about being a victim. That in consuming it and sort of getting the grisly details, we're kind of arming ourselves with this knowledge and, in a way, making it our own. And that's what's been really fun is like, even if we're sharing something that's like slightly traumatic or getting through details that are kind of grisly, it's kind of like we're owning this. We're drunk and we're taking back the night <laughs> by doing a podcast. <laughs> So yeah, I'm definitely not like a true crime nut or anything. Unquote. There's anything wrong with the nuts. We love you. <laughs> I'm quite a big fan. I have always been a, quite a big fan of your serial killers. And you've got, I've got a favourite. Ed Gein is probably my favourite. Or Ed Gein, depending how you want to pronounce yeah. it. Or Gein. If or you're Gein. If one of Gein's family gift shop. Yeah, yeah it might be Gein, Gein, Gein. It's I'm, Gein, isn't it? 
Is it I think it's Gain, I think. I think it's Gain. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's Jin. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real shame that he's my favourite and I've it's never really... He's not even really... called Ed, he's called Eid. Yeah. Eid Gain. See, I didn't know he was your favourite, because we don't just do murders, we do all kinds of crime. Yeah. So I, I'm just getting to know you well, and your favourite serial. Yeah. But that's what's fun about doing all sorts of crimes as well. Like we had a hijacking, like a uh, plane hijacking in the episode with London News, and that's just so much fun because... You just, it only happened in the 70s, but you're like, you know, he literally just walked onto this plane, bought a ticket for $20, had a bomb on him in a briefcase, and you kind of just think, wow, like, even in the last, like, 30, 40 years, things have changed yeah. so much. And that's kind of fascinating. I, I say for the better. Yeah, do you know what? Do you <laughs> on know that score. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bloody modern world. You know, as a local news reporter for, for years, and you cover a lot of crime in that. Get ones where people are just really stupid, mm. and you can't believe they actually thought that would work. Most of these cases that you know you, you look at, and we're sort of discussing it, and you're just like, these people are just morons, and that's what makes it kind of fun and interesting. Mm. I think why actually comedy and true crime is a good is a good mix because you look at it a lot of the time, and you're just like, wow, how I gasp an awful lot during these um, podcasts because you're just I also I think because we're drunk we're gasping a bit more than we should be we have to really put the effort into it when you're on a podcast obviously a gasp is part visual Mm. so when you're gasping you almost have to say the word gasp that's like radio acting where you go hmm or just have to make noises so people know you are still there yeah oh Mickey I'm going to do that next time gasp I love that if Hannah likes a bit of Ed Gein going again yeah, I have to say the serial killer thing. It's funny because I think of true crime the way we sort of deal with it now in these drawn out documentaries yeah. and podcasts and stuff. But growing up, it was like it was the biopics of serial killers. Mm. And I remember like my dad had Helter Skelter. He had this big stack of books that was like his secret stack of books. Like the bookshelf had like William Blake and the complete works of Shakespeare. And then the secret box was like The Exorcist and Helter Skelter. And that's where I learned all my stuff. Taylor, I don't understand your fascination with by my big secret chamber of mystery. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by Jeffrey Dahmer and I actually just saw the film that was made about oh, everything so that nice. happened. Yeah, which Oh, his, his childhood. Yes. My friend Dahmer. Yes, yes I watched my that, like, friend couple of Dahmer. And yeah. I thought it was like, this sounds so weird, but it was like beautifully restrained because obviously everything about his case and when it came out, it was like we had never heard yeah. such grotesque... Mm just inhumane just horrible stuff but there he was, was something alcoholic, wasn't he Dama? yeah he was a very heavy like as a drinker. child yeah he started mm. drinking really young but it was his sort of like social group that was really interesting because he kind of he tried to force his way in and yeah you, um, again it's this thing of like empathizing with the monster but it was it was the first time I'd seen any of that explored because all I knew was the monster you do giggle a lot through the crimes. Is that the ruse or just the hilarious details of idiocy that come out? Oh, it depends. I mean, sometimes it's just, again, it's the stupid choices that are made along the way. Like, for instance, I always forget his name and I want to call him Dr. Klippenstein. What's his name? <laughs> Dr. Krippen. Dr. Krippen. I always call him Klippenstein. I think there was a teacher <laughs> that I had or something who creeped me out. But he anyway. killed his wife. <laughs> so one of the choices he made, so obviously these grisly things have happened, but he tries to escape across the ocean <laughs> in a boat with his lover and so instead of pretending they're just like credible other characters he said well I'll play the father and you'll be my son it's and just, it's like why don't we choose the most difficult role to yeah. play and then they didn't stop like touching each other and kissing each yeah, other like, like they just didn't to the stop. role yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also like things like so for example where he killed his wife 
um, and her body was buried um, in the basement. There's a thing called quicklime, and quicklime, if you cover a body in it, yeah. it will disintegrate and it will, it will go, it will disappear. However, he didn't he didn't get that. He was a doctor, but he didn't realise that you can't just use lime. So he likes put lime like you put in a gin and tonic over uh-huh. her body, which preserved it. And it's just shit like that, and you just think like... Like he was making ceviche. Uh-huh. It, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I think um, we were just having this chat, because there are so many... Um, again, true crime podcast series and some people take it really, really far and there's no boundaries and some of them are super, super dark and I think we're not setting out to do, obviously in some of the cases have some brutal details but we're not trying to push it I think it's more that balance of humor and storytelling to me. It's almost like, how did this person come to be? And there's always a father. There's always the father that <laughs> sends her away to a convent or to go work in somebody's house. And it's like, it always starts with a bad dad. There is a point with true crime where you think that there is actually an unsolved murder in my family. Like, wow. one of my cousins was murdered when I was nine. Oh, my God. And would this be a thing that you would want everyone talking about because they've been listening to it on a podcast and speculating and yeah. tweeting that? Yes. Which is what happens with the oh. JonBenet Ramsey. If you look oh, at right. that yes. case, yes. with how right. many people have decided it was... And are now possibly being sued. Because we watch murder mysteries so much, you want to think, oh, it was because of this and this, and you knew the person. And normally you do you know the person. It's a narrative but, rather yeah, than a rather random. Than just man a random and, yeah. yeah, exactly, which is what it could be. Yeah. Lots of yeah. them are kind of miscarriage of justices, just I or whatever, in, in the <laughs> other word. Is that the word? Yes, in the other it. sense, in the sense that, you know, serial was about. Adnan, who yeah. was already in prison, but it's like, did he not do it? And making yeah. a murderer, did he not do it? Right. And that seems to be something that people obviously feel a bit more invested in, rather than trying to find yeah. someone who murdered someone a long time ago. It's God, are there, are there some people in jail that didn't do it. Yeah. That sort of miscarriage of justice, I think, is the thing that really gets people Absolutely. interested. Absolutely. How do you find the crimes that you want to put on the podcast? Well, this is it in this age of Google. There are just endless resources online. I mean, everything is logged. And then once you find a little blurb, you know that there's listicles everywhere that are like, the 10 most obscure crimes you've never heard of. And then you just find the blurb and then you can find as much info. Yeah, and then you realize in everyday life, like, that actually crimes come up also like I went to see a play the other day and they mentioned um, a woman called Bathory and she was like uh, like a serial killer from back in the day in Transylvania and I was like okay this sounds interesting so I went home did a bit of research and I want to use her so it's things you know things like that actually I'm finding in my everyday life there'll be even the name of a pub could be like yeah. named and also metal bands like my boyfriend's really into like <laughs> metal and death metal and literally I'm like have you ever he heard of is? <laughs> yeah and I'm hugely hugely it's well, only listen I'm gasp. learning about you I'm learning about him <laughs> gasp but the thing is it's like you know so Bathory uh, is the name of a metal band oh, okay. um, Lizzie Borden yeah, is the name Lizzie of Borden. a metal band I used to know a poem about Lizzie Borden Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother, mother 40 wax. Yes. And yes. when she saw what she had done, then she gave her father 41. Yeah. Yes, we mentioned that. Who the episode. fuck taught me that when I was younger? Kids are taught these morbid things yeah. So it's like we've always been taking true crime in a light way. Like, let's turn it into a nursery rhyme. Dr. Yeah. Crippen had a song about him, which at the end... It's Klippenstein? Klippenstein. Klippenstein. Dr. Klippenstein. <laughs> <laughs> But he's like, 
The thing at the end of Dr. Crippen, bearing in mind he murdered his wife, at the end of the song for Dr. Crippen, and, and he, got on a, um, he got on a boat to, to Canada at the time to sort of try and get away, and the end of this song just goes, ships ahoy, naughty boy. <laughs> I'm just like, come on, guys. Yes. Was what? that... You know this. Was there something in that 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 was like the first telegram ever sent or something that said Griffin on board? Yes, yes it was. It was. Yeah. It was the first yes. time they used. Wow, them. you are just a fountain of trivia knowledge. Shit I knowledge. love it. Yeah. Well, we call that the anal. family tragedy. This is becoming a running thing. We call that the anal library. It's the okay. anus library. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the anal library is a different. different. <laughs> So we had one beer, but it like it knows what it's doing now. It goes right for the the anus library. Yeah, I apologize. Goes right for your anus. That's what I'm able to That's do. That's because it was just in one episode. Katie said something about something. She was like, "I'm just pulling this out of my ass," and you were like, "Your anus library. We love your anus library." And now that's if anybody has ever got it's any additional well information. Stopped. Yeah, yeah, it's the anus library. We should all be proud of our anus libraries. Yeah. Hashtag anus library. <laughs> Also a nice girl's name. Hey. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, you're doing a live show, aren't you? Oh my goodness, yes we are. 1st of November at the Pleasance Islington. We're going to announce guests soon, so we're going to do two episodes back-to-back uh, with a break in between so our audience can get as drunk as we will be. And it should be should be good fun, I think. Yeah. Do you know what crimes you're going to cover yet, or is that a secret? Not yet. Not I, yet. I do have one in mind. They have to be super Are you going to commit it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I do have one in mind. I'm going to go the extra mile. Uh, <laughs> um, steal that. But in terms of like Taylor going, was it committed by a man or me? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Raise his eyebrow. Yeah, I, I like these kind of like old Hollywood, like 1920s, 30s cases. So I, I have one in mind that's pretty well known, but the details are very interesting. But I'm not sure. Okay, okay. We'll see. I feel like we should tailor it to the guest in a way, too. What, what kind of crime would she enjoy? Yeah. <laughs> you tell us. Exactly. Um, and in terms of where to find us, we're obviously on iTunes, Drunk Women Finding, finding Crime. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> drunk, I'm great at this. Drunk Women Solving Crime. We're on Acast as well, so just search for us. And we're on most of the things that you can get your... Um, your podcasts from yes we are on most platforms and you can follow us on twitter at drunk women pod and instagram and facebook at drunk women solving crime and one last question what is your tipple of choice hannah oh i do not beers probably i do like a beer love it simple it's to the point does the job i'm a wine girl but i'll say yes to anything because of the wine. I mean, if you, if you want to leave it there, we are happy to. <laughs> it's your choice. Hello, lovely Standard Issue listeners. Dottie Winters here, writer, pet hoarder, haphazard parent. With National Adoption Week coming up, Standard Issue have asked me to talk to you about my experiences as an adopter. I was going to write a thoughtful and considered piece full of insight and intelligence, but I've got too many kids to have time for that. So instead, I've decided just to overshare some of the best and worst things I've thought throughout my adoption journey. Before adoption. How hard can it be? I can do forms. I've got this. Forms are great. Who doesn't like admin? And stationery. Plus, I'm going to win a baby. I don't even have to squish rudy bits with anyone or squeeze anything out of anywhere. I'm going to be the best adopter ever. I wonder how I pick my baby. Is it like the Argos catalogue? During the adoption assessment... This social worker is about 12, max. He wears Batman socks. What does he know about anything? And why is he always here? 
It feels like he's moved into our house. Holy crap, have I done the forms wrong and adopted him? Why are there 16 pages on this questionnaire about my sex life? What are other people doing that would fill 16 pages? Oh God, is everybody else doing loads of bum stuff or water sports? Am I going to look like a weirdo? Maybe it's a trick. Perhaps I need to say I've never done it at all. Maybe I need to spend some time reading Urban Dictionary in case they're disappointed with my answers. Seriously, how clean does my house need to be? I mean, they know it's only tidy because they're here, right? Why hasn't the social worker gone into the kitchen? I bought exotic fruit for the fruit bowl specially. I must be perfectly adorable to my children and spouse at all times. I must be perfectly adorable to my children and spouse at all times. I must be perfectly adorable to my children and spouse at all times. People are watching. Why has the five-year-old just tumbled down all the stairs and landed at the social worker's feet? He's never done that before. That joke the kids make about the wine box being mummy juice doesn't seem so cute anymore. Who taught the parrot to swear? Why have they brought tissues to this meeting? Are they expecting me to cry? Why am I crying? Why can't I stop crying? Who taught the six-year-old to swear? Where did my toddler find that Stanley knife? Maybe these social workers are going to take away my other children. Are you kidding me? There's an actual baby catalogue. That's appalling. That's just awful. That's... Oh, look at that one. I want that one. During the approval and matching panels. Who are all these people? Why are they all wearing twin sets and pearls? Is this panel taking place in 1979? They aren't smiling. Should they be smiling? Should I be smiling? Why won't my face work? Why is the only decoration in here a box of tissues? Why is my social worker nervous? This can't be a good sign. Give me the child. Through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the goblin city to take back the child that you have stolen. For my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom is as great. You have no power over me. Why am I crying? As you are approved. Oh God, there's tissues here too. Are they expecting me to cry? I should cry. Why can't I cry? I need to show normal human emotions. Does anyone have an onion? (sighs) Thank fuck for that. I want a baby. Thank fuck for that. I don't ever need to tidy my house ever again. Perhaps I'll celebrate by doing some of those things I wrote on the sex form. I hope it's a cute one. Like, really cute. What if I don't love my new baby? What if I love my new child more than my other children? How will I know when I love my child? When you meet your child for the very first time. Oh my, this is weird. You're that kid from the photo. You're that kid whose face I've been staring at. You are my phone screensaver. You're everything to us. We've never even met. Can I do this? A team of social workers and a judge have decided that I'm a better option for you, you gorgeous, fragile, tiny thing. They've decided that we are a better option for you. I need to be the best, the safest and the most fun place for you forever. I am so sorry that I wasn't here sooner. I'm so sorry that I didn't get to you sooner. Can I do this? A team of social workers and a judge has ruled that I am a more than adequate parent. Hell yeah, I can do this. I am invincible. Why am I crying again? Is that it? They give you a baby and then they disappear and stop giving you the tissues. 
after you bring your child home. Why are none of my neighbours surprised that I suddenly have a new baby? Oh God, I must be really fat. They must think I've been pregnant for like 12 months with a one-year-old. I am totally never going to eat carbs ever again. Why am I so tired? Babies are hard. I'd forgotten. I better have some toast. Oh my goodness. He sleeps through the night. Foster families are the greatest. How have they trained him so well? He is so perfect. I can't imagine him not being here. His head smells funny. He doesn't smell like mine. What if he never does? He's crying. Is he crying because he's sad that I adopted him? Everyone says he looks like me. He does look like me. Every time I look at him, he looks more like me. Did I have another biological baby and forget? He threw his toy away. Is he angry because he was adopted? He ate sardines on toast. I hate sardines. This is never going to work. He just handed me a half-chewed soggy crisp and I ate it. I definitely love him. My other kids have been really annoying today. Perhaps I like this new one better. Maybe I just make annoying kids and I should have adopted all along. Oh no, now he's being annoying. Is it because he's adopted? Am I failing? Do I make kids annoying? He's still being annoying. They all are. Kids are annoying. He's truly one of us now. Tiny little weirdo like the rest of us. Wow, these kids in the park are way more annoying than any of my kids. My kids are perfect. His head smells amazing. I hope there isn't ever a fire in my house. I don't know which one I'd pick. Where did I leave that baby catalogue? Maybe there is room for just one more. Just for balance, I asked my littlest what he thinks of adoption. He said that sometimes it feels a bit weird, but he's glad we found him because we are the greatest. He's not wrong. A bunch of social workers and a judge said that, so... Oh God, why am I crying again? Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, and any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. Hello, we're joined by journalist and author Jean Hannah Edelstein, whose debut non-fiction book, This Really Isn't About You, came out on August the 23rd. Hey Jean. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks very much for coming in. So, This Really Isn't About You really is about you. It is about me. Pray, tell us some more. <laughs> so, I always have to preface this with like, it's really funny. It is, but I can I can. The book for is, that. it sounds very depressing when I describe it. So it's basically a memoir. I grew up in the U.S. and then when I was 18, I first moved to Canada for university and then I briefly moved to Ireland and then moved to the U.K. for nine years and then moved to Germany. So I lived outside of the U.S. for my whole adult life until I was uh, 32. And then my father had lung cancer. And so because unlike my siblings, I had no no big commitments. I didn't have kids or a or a partner. I decided to move back to New York in order to support my parents while my dad was ill. And then sadly, six weeks after I arrived, he died slightly more suddenly than we thought he would, although his diagnosis had been terminal from the beginning. 
six months after that, I found out that I had Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic cancer syndrome, which um, hugely increases my risk of getting cancer, which my dad had had. And so the book kind of like covers the experience of losing my dad and of getting the diagnosis and then reflects on my life before I had that diagnosis when I sort of like lived in this state of blissful ignorance and freedom where I never thought about mortality (laughs) versus after the diagnosis when I had to go through the adjustment process of living a life that was like colored by this knowledge and kind of deciding, okay, I have this information, so what am I going to do with it and how is it going to influence like how I move forward? Lynch syndrome, Mm -hmm. one in 400 people have it, but most people don't actually know they've got it until they've got cancer. But your dad had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about it, right? He did. So basically, my dad had a skin cancer that is associated with Lynch in 2010. And he was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2012, I believe. So he had the skin cancer. And then his sister had, around the same time, uterine cancer, which is also a typical Lynch cancer. And so fortunately, some doctor who knew what they were doing said, we should test you for Lynch. And they discovered that they were both positive for it. Their mother died of colon cancer, which is the cancer most associated with Lynch. Um, And she had died in, I think, 1963 when she was about 42. She was super young. She was super young. And she was first diagnosed with colon cancer when she was in her early 30s. And Lynch wasn't even named as a syndrome until after she died, a few years after she died. So it just wasn't on, it wasn't something that anyone knew about. And then suddenly you know, we had these test results and like looking at the family medical history, it was obvious that my grandmother had clearly had it, that her sister had had it, that their mother had probably had it because there was just so much cancer in the family. And growing up before we had this information, we'd sort of, the fact that my grandmother had died so young was obviously something that I knew about. My dad didn't talk about her that much because she was sick for so much of his childhood. It was just, you know, a deeply sad thing that had happened in the family. And so we would sort of talk about things like being susceptible to colon cancer. And my dad started having colonoscopies at a pretty young age. But we never knew that it was written in our genes that this was an issue. So when my dad got tested for it, he then told me and my two siblings, you know, you should get tested for it. And they both got tested pretty quickly. And, you know, happily, they're both negative. And I was just very reluctant to get tested for it. And I think I had a hunch that I had it, which is, you know, it's a 50% chance that I had it. So it may just be that I was feeling pessimistic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also, I think, and this, you know, I kind of describe this in the book, you know, I had been single for a long time. Like, I was kind of, like, drifting around jobs. Like, I just didn't feel very, like, moored in life. And I just kind of couldn't handle facing this possibility. And then when my dad got diagnosed with lung cancer, which I believe we were never 100% sure that it was tied to Lynch, but certainly Lynch increases your risk of all kinds of cancer, essentially. Because it has to do with the way that... You know, everyone has kind of cells that are going a bit rogue in their bodies. Most people have a gene that defeats those cells before they become serious. But people with Lynch, that gene is kind of dysfunctional. So then when my dad got lung cancer, I still hadn't been tested. And then I was like, well, I don't want to find out that I have it while he's, you know, frankly, while he's dying, because I think that would just be very hard to break him that news. And he really wanted me to get tested and sort of would remind me. And then I thought, well, I suppose I could get tested and then tell my dad that I'm negative. But then because I didn't want him to have to live with that knowledge in the last months of his life, but then I'd have to tell my mom that I lied. Like, that's not a good solution either. So I just kind of 
made the decision that I was, you know, when it was clear that he didn't have too much time left, that I was going to wait until he died. When I got tested, I found out that most people don't actually get tested for it. And in fact, it's still something that like, there's not a huge amount of knowledge, even though it's really pretty common. Like it's not that rare. But, you were kind of quiz yeah. about why you wanted to be tested, weren't you? Yeah, it's been about four years since my diagnosis now. Now, when I go to a doctor about any unconnected thing, and like, you know, they sort of ask, because I'm in the U.S., and so it's not like the NHS where they generally already have your records, they'll ask for you to do a medical history, and I always, you know, I'll be like, I have asthma, like I've been treated for depression, and like Lynch syndrome. And then these doctors will, unless they're treating me for Lynch specifically, will be like, oh, you've already had colon cancer, and I'm like, no, I haven't. But most people are not diagnosed with Lynch until they've actually had cancer. Mm-hmm. A small part of writing the book is hoping that there will be a little bit more awareness about this. So ultimately, when I went to get the the test, it was very traumatic information to find out because I think, you know, my dad was like maybe in his 60s before he found out. So he lived all those years not knowing that this was written in his future. And I remember around, I told a friend about it and they said, well, how's your dad doing? And I said, well, I don't think it's ever very nice to know how you likely may die. <laughs> and then when I got the diagnosis, I was like, yeah, it's really not nice to know that. <laughs> I interviewed American comedian Caitlin Brodnick mm-hmm. about a book that she wrote about how she had preemptive double mastectomy. Right, for BRCA probably, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in her book, and mm-hmm. when I interviewed her, she said that when she found out, mm-hmm. she got pissed for five years. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a reasonable response. <laughs> To pretty much anything if you're British, to be honest. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely got pissed. One of the key things for women with Lynch, I mean, it's interesting because, like, what to what degree it's communicated about is the emphasis is on colon cancer. But for women, the risk of uterine cancer and ovarian cancer is super high. So the recommendation is that you have a hysterectomy as soon as you've, like, completed your family. And, and you were in your early 30s I was, when you got your diagnosis. Yeah, I was 33. I had been single for years. And they were like, yeah, you should have a hysterectomy. And I was like, no. <laughs> there was this person in, in my sort of like initial meeting after the diagnosis. And they were like, you should have a hysterectomy. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that because I'd like to have a family. And then I was like, and also I don't have a partner. And there's this like terrible silence. And I was like, well, this is a very depressing moment. <laughs> and then this woman was like, well, if we're not going to take your ovaries right now, then I guess... <laughs> you can do these screenings. And I was like, has anyone ever tried to dig your ovaries? <laughs> you know, if the many complications of this kind of diagnosis is that depending on what doctors or medical practitioners you see, some of them are very empathetic and some of them really just kind of like treat you as a dysfunctional machine where like it's their job to fix the machine and they're just not really thinking about what the implications could be for the rest of your life. And so I certainly drank a lot <laughs> had some pretty unwise relationships because I was like, why should I even be trying to find a partner? What will my future be? You know, I slept around a bit. It was not kind of like in keeping with how I wanted my life to be, but I just really went through a period where I was like, I just felt like giving up. The book is very funny. (laughs) It's right and it's warm and it's your observations and it is sort of about cancer and it's sort of about looking for love and it's sort of about finding yourself and it's sort of about family But it's mostly just very much about getting on with stuff, Mm -hmm. which I think everyone will find eminently relatable because we have two options, don't we? You get on with stuff 
or you don't? I think that's exactly it. And I think I got the diagnosis and I went through this period of being like, I'm just not going to get on with it. <laughs> and then just continuing to um, wake up and be like, all right, I guess this is just my life now. And so I'm just going to I'm going to carry on. I think that is something I really got from my dad. Um, he was a scientist. And so he really applied that kind of experimental thinking to everything in life. He was a great problem solver in that if I had any kind of an issue, I'd be like, you know, dad such and such is going on. And he'd be like, okay, let's work on this. And he was always working on everything. And sometimes, you know, he couldn't, there was no solution. But this kind of attitude of, well, we're going to get on with it. We're going to work on it and see what happens often carried me through knowing that everything could be worked on. When my dad died, I remember thinking like, oh, this is the one thing. He can't work on it. And that was kind of shocking to me that it made me realize just how much I had always looked to him to have this kind of problem-solving attitude. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess all of these times that he's helped me in the past have really been setting me up for this life without him, where I'm the one who has to work on it now. And I've been fortunate that, you know, I found some doctors who know what they're doing and we're realistic about things like, yeah, you don't want to have a hysterectomy right now. So we're going to put you on a screening protocol that will hopefully allow you to delay that until later on. I have a much more medicalized life than I ever did before. And that in itself is kind of shocking. And I'm sure anyone listening who's gone through an experience of a diagnosis after being healthy for a long time. And the weird thing is I am still very healthy. But every six months or so, I go through this battery of unpleasant tests, and I just kind of feel it's not pleasant, but I'm working on it, you know, and I think that that carries me through. Are we allowed to do a little bit of a spoiler? Please. (laughs) How's it working out for you? Well, I'm pregnant. So that's kind of interesting is that, and it it was actually very important to me that the book ended, the book ends kind of two years after my diagnosis. And it's, you know, another two years have passed since then. And a lot has changed in my life. But it was very important to me that the book was not resolved by me meeting my husband and getting married and getting pregnant, because I feel like far too many narratives about women's lives are framed that way. Where It's that's, like a Disney film. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it is. <laughs> yeah. And my husband will hear this and be like, I mean, actually, he's been really supportive because I was like, you're not in this book. (laughs) And he's like, "Okay." (laughs) I think what allowed me to meet my husband was finding resolution in terms of these aspects of my life. It wasn't that meeting him resolved them. So I met him probably about six months after the end of the book. My husband and I met through Tinder. So, you know, oh, my God, it happens. It does happen. There you go. Example one. No, I know. I know. There's another example. I know another another example. example. Yeah. I mean, I think it happens increasingly. What's funny is that people will ask me how we met. And my relationship with him is so disassociated with the majority of my experience with with Tinder, which was gross. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we met on Tinder. Like That's weird. I think in defense of Hannah's skepticism, Mm -hmm. which I am on board with, I'd say it's happened more and more often because it's getting the only way that people are meeting each other. It really is. It's taking over. I mean, I find it really funny that, like, if someone is like, oh, I met met someone, people are like, which app? Like, no one is like, how did you meet? They just want to know, like, how you Did you you join a club? Yeah, exactly. I had a a therapist once. Yeah, so after my dad died, I, like, started going to therapy, and the therapist was, like, a very nice man, but I think he's, like, 70. I was talking about how I was lonely and wanted to meet someone. And he's like, have you considered joining young friends of the New York Philharmonic Symphony? (laughs) And I was like, yes, if I wanted to meet you. (laughs) Please tell me you joined. I didn't. Because I was like. (laughs) Jeez. 
It's too expensive. <laughs> well, if anyone next... does meet their partner via that way, you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, please, please call in. Say so maybe that's my next step. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you make sweet, sweet music with someone yeah. who's friends with the Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. Sure. Even though dating's in your past, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you and your husband might have a lovely open relationship. <laughs> but I'm going to assume it's in the past. For you now, still yeah. write a, a dating column for the Guardian. I did for a bit. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's it's about dating in post me to mm-hmm. society that's fascinating what sort of questions did you find were coming up quite a lot i think me too has made people like really reckon with their dating behavior and you know kind of going back to that men choosing and women waiting to be chosen and i think women felt like they had to put up with a lot of abusive behavior in the course of looking for love that it was just kind of par for the course so i would say it was a mixture of women writing in about disturbing experiences that they'd had especially if they were like quite far in the past like should I tell this person what he did because I think mm-hmm. language has moved on and words have now been yeah. coined mm-hmm. for stuff that happened the one that springs to mind at the moment is stealthing right yeah yeah that but, was one that someone wrote about which is stealthing which is you know when someone when you agree to have sex with someone but then they don't use a condom even and you though have, you've agreed and to, that's not yeah. part of the agreement and like that's rape or they but, take it off halfway through yeah exactly and then I think that's not an, an, an uncommon practice among people who are dating See, Fuck, this is no. why I get really yeah. annoyed exactly. with these words I get annoyed <laughs> with the word stealthing I get annoyed mm. with the word ghosting because none of these things are new these are things uh, that what's new in enabling like with ghosting mm-hmm. is there are different forms of technology mm-hmm. But basically, they're creating what, what is actually a form of behaviour and saying, that's the thing they're doing. There's already a word for it. It's being a cock. Your argument about this is that it legitimises it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, yeah. oh, they're falling yeah. into a pattern of behaviour rather yeah. than they are behaving well, absolutely outrageous. It's catch-22, though, yeah. isn't it? Because I agree with you, but it also gives women who didn't know how to describe it a voice I think and a word it, you know, to describe I think it. And particularly in the case of condom removal mid-intercourse, like I think that's something that a lot of people just kind of regarded it as the price you had to pay for being a single woman, that like occasionally you would get raped, and but like by oh. someone who you knew, and it wasn't someone, I mean, remember years ago, who's that politician who's, who, who described the difference between like rape and serious rape or something like that? Ken Clark. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think a lot of women really like took that kind of attitude to heart. And so what Me Too has kind of given them a voice. I agree with you. Turning it into like a hashtag is not the answer. If it has given women the ability to articulate that these behaviors are abusive, I think that's that's a good thing. Where can we find you, Hannah? No, you're Hannah. I looked at Hannah, sorry. <laughs> Where can we find you, Jean? Um, I'm here. Yes. <laughs> I'm sitting next to Hannah. Yeah, it's very pretentious to use my middle name, but there's a Jean Edelstein who's more famous than me, so uh, that's why I do it. On Twitter, at J.H. Edelstein. On Instagram, under the same name. I have a website which I haven't updated in ages, so yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming in Thank and chatting so to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. If you're enjoying this week's podcast, you're going to enjoy what's coming up at the weekend. We've got two special chops for you. First up, Jen Talks to the authors of Slay in Your Lane, Yomi Adagoki and Elizabeth Uvibinene. And Mick and I go to Dublin to talk to Dr. Maeve O'Rourke about the legacy of the Magdalene Laundries. Tune in on Sunday or... If you subscribe, wake up on Sunday morning to find them waiting for you on your phone. The choice is yours. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. 
it's that time of the week where we hit the metaphorical patriarchal wall and we just keep running as we discuss all things women's sport. This week I'm talking to running blogger Emma Bramwell about her 30 for 30 challenge, but first, a massive, massive big up to boxer Nicola Adams, who beat Mexican Isabel Milan in a unanimous points victory on Saturday night to win the WBO interim world flyweight title and is a step closer to claiming the full title. That could happen as soon as December the 22nd, according to Frank Warren, as she could find herself on the undercard of some dude bout then. The title is currently held by Mexican Arely Muchino. Let's hope that full title comes ASAP. Also, massive congrats to the Lionesses, that's the England football team, the women's ofs, who beat Brazil in an international friendly by 1-0 on Saturday and that goal came from the fantastic Fran Kirby. So that's excellent. I mean, Brazil, come on guys, like Marta wins FIFA Player of the Year like basically every year forever and ever. So that is, that's a real achievement and uh, yeah, fantastic. That's all I've got in the roundup. Over to Emma. I'm joined on the phone by blogger and running enthusiast Emma Branwell. Emma's talking to us today about her 30 for 30 running challenge. Hello Emma. Hi. Emma and I have unfortunately a similar horrible life experience which is that we have both lost our brothers to suicide and Emma you're taking part in this particular challenge in memory of your brother. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired this and, and what it is and yeah, sadly, we lost Adam in April 2016. I was a keen runner beforehand, running a few like half marathons and things like that. So on one of these runs that I do, I came up with the idea to run 30 races in 12 months over the year, like from when he turned 29 to what bending on what would have been his 30th birthday. So I've Branded it 30 for 30, taking part in um, 30 races for three mental health charities that I feel like have been really significant in like our lives since then. Mind Charity, SOBS, which is Survivors of Bereavement Through Suicide, which is a support group that's really helped my mum. And also Mental Health Research UK, because that's just, I feel like, a lot more research needs to go into that side of things. Okay, so when did you start your challenge, Emma? The first race was actually on Adam's 29th birthday on the 18th of November last year. So it's actually a 12-month challenge starting Mm -hmm. from then. So we've done, at the moment, I think it's... What am I up to now? Race... I've done 28 races at the moment, and we just have two more, but the the last one, the 30th race, is actually the New York Marathon. Wow. Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of training for that. So you must be sort of tapering now. Yeah, we did. Um, I did 19 miles today, mm-hmm. and I've got the um, Manchester Half Marathon next week, which we're which is part of it. Oh, sorry, that's actually race number 28, and I'll be running home from that to make it like another big long training run, <laughs> and then tapering from there. Wow, so it's a lot. You ran the Great North Run not long ago. What was that experience like? I got that place through Mind through the charity. It was great to meet all of those people there. There was a charity tent at the end. So I went and met some of the team behind the scenes there. There were so many people running for Mind and it was just overwhelming to hear all of the like, different stories of people running that race and you know to hear how much money they're raising. That was like wonderful. The race itself, yeah, it was good. It was Mo Farrell was running that. So it was just, it felt like an absolute massive achievement and just a taste of what it's going to be like for New York 
next month I think something like 57,000 people were running it and yeah it was overwhelming and I did I went through my own sort of bits of battles on the way there because we decided to drive up the morning on the way and I was a bit nervous and yeah I shared in my blog like my feeling really anxious on the way but you know, I got through it and it was wonderful and the sense of achievement was just amazing. What's the total number of miles you think you're going to cover across the whole challenge have you got any idea? Um, I'm not sure I, I did I did put this into I did like do a little bit of a stat research thing but I think I think it, we were over 250 miles in races at the moment I think and a lot more of that in just training. Wow. But, yeah, I'm going to do a blog on that at the end to just do a bit of a rundown. on. I think it's something like I've spent three days running this year. That's, I mean, that's three days more than I want to run this year. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Physically speaking, what's been the toughest aspect of it? So I was a runner anyway, where I used to train for a half marathon, say, in may and then i'd do that and then stop running over winter and kind of just pick it up as and when but i think just keeping on going over the winter months Mm. and just going out you know you've you've got these dates where you have to train you have to get up on early on a weekend when you know you're out with your friends and you kind of have to say i've got to go home now because i know that i've got to get up and do a half marathon the next day it's been very time consuming especially for the the marathon months now like leading up to that um and there's been like some points where I think I mentioned in my blog like I've crumbled a bit thinking you know this is really tough but you know why am I doing this and I think of Adam and I think of the reasons why and it is you know it's been really emotional but sadly I have also lost a brother to suicide and you know it's it's an extremely traumatic experience to go through have you found that the running and the activity has helped your mental health? Yeah, definitely. I think going back to, you know, when we first lost Adam, after, you know, it happened, you kind of, I think I was still running back then and I did do a half marathon because I was in the middle of training for a half marathon back then and I still did it, it was six weeks after. And even things like that, I thought, you know, this I'm, I'm, being, I'm doing really well and even for the 12 months after Adam passed away, you know, you kind of think, you know, I had like dips and stuff, but I felt, you know, you know, this is great and being really strong. But I think it's only in the past, maybe even few months, six to 12 months, you actually look back and think, oh, I wasn't really okay back then. I was kind of coping and getting through. But I think doing this blogging and, you know, doing all the runs that I've been doing in memory of him, I think, yeah, it has helped my mental health a lot this past 12 months. Have you found it quite a sort of healing experience? Has it felt good to do something positive with your experience? Yeah, definitely. I think the last time I actually spoke to Adam, you know, I knew he was struggling with his mental health and his anxieties. And we went out and, you know, had some lunch and spoke about spoke about it a bit in depth. And I said, you know, have you tried running you know I always try to encourage him to go out and go for a run and do different bits and bobs that I thought may help and on that day he did go for a run and he phoned me and said oh you know that was amazing this felt really great you know I want to keep it up and I think me doing this and thinking about him I don't know I think it does feel and blogging about it and sharing those experiences sharing what I spoke to him about and sharing on my blog 
you know being quite open about it and how I feel mm-hmm. and like stories like that I do I do think knowing that I'm maybe helping other people yeah it has been quite healing I'd say on one of my blogs I think I wrote about a local support group that I'd heard about it, it seemed to fit in something that I was writing about and someone actually reached out to me one I think it was one of, one of Adam's friends and he sent a message and said you know thanks for writing about that I went to that support group and you know within that he found that that really helped him and since then he's you know done all these different activities with them they've like climbed up Snowden and stuff to help his mental health and I think just things like that knowing that you're helping other people it it has been great. So Emma how can we read your blog and follow your progress as you sort of come towards the end of this and where can we donate? I have been writing all about my runs on www.30for30.blog, which is 30FOR30.blog. Mm-hmm. Within that, there's all the, I've got some guest blogs as well from people who have run with me and also people sharing their own stories. Sometimes it's about the races themselves and I'm covering different topics that have affected me since losing Adam. Emma, thank you so much for talking to us about your challenge and we wish you all the best. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hello, Hannah here, constant interrupter. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I did 2017's, well that's last year, last year's Coco, which is the most recent thing that we will be watching on this. If we hurry up and watch everything <laughs> before something else is... Is this why you've been binge disney Binge disney I have actually, I watched four last week for Disney films. For the listeners, Hannah's wearing Mickey Mouse ears and she's waving some sort of weird Disney flag. And she's actually And also a look now. of utter desperation. <laughs> it's set in Mexico and it's the first Disney film to have an all Latino principal cast. Now I say principal cast, that's basically an all Latino cast, except for the fact that John Ratzenberger has been in every single Pixar film and they had sort of a question here of whether they were going to break with that tradition in order to have a 100% Latino cast, which they also really wanted. They compromised. John Ratzenberger has one line in this film. A big name in it is Gail Garcia Bernal, Mexican actor, who I have lots of thoughts about, most of which aren't relevant to this and most of which probably aren't the sort of thing I should be talking about in public. So we will move on quickly. (laughs) I just realised who you meant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I had not seen this before. My nephew, when I told him I was going to watch it, he said that he hadn't gone to see it, but that almost everybody that he knew talked about it incessantly. So I had high hopes for it. Although... That wasn't the same thing that happened when I got halfway through Inside Out, but that's another conversation for another day. Have you guys managed to watch it? I have. I watched it. Well done, Disney, for going beyond the wall. (laughs) Now, I have not watched it, but I would like to say something in my defence. I was told there would be two Disney films we'd be recording on the same day, 
and that Mickey had already watched this one. So I watched the other one. Now we're not doing it this week. No, so that was my balls up, I I'm just, afraid. I just wanted to state for the record, I and did watch a Disney film this week. <laughs> also, oh. the dog ate Jen's homework. <laughs> oh, no, that is my fault for Jen this week. I'm giving her a special dispensation and also Thanks. allowing her toilet breaks. Thanks. <laughs> did you like it? Do you know what? I fucking loved it. Honestly, up until now, my favourite disney film has been up i went to see up with my nephew and my dad and my nephew who is no longer a tiny boy and my dad who is no longer alive so obviously something about up really touches me were it not for the fact that i watched this at home in my pants on my own had it been that i went out on a happy family trip to watch this i think this actually might surpass up as the best one that i've watched slightly tangential but i think you've just been at home in your pants sounds slightly less dangerous than you're wearing pyjamas. Yeah, well, yeah, quite. Oh God, I've got ever such a swollen finger still. <laughs> so, bit of plot. It's set on the Mexican Day of the Dead. It opens with a narration of a story of, about a curse that travels through many generations of a family. And you guys know this, but people who don't know me that well might not know that. 100 Years of Solitude is probably my favourite book ever and that opens with a narration about a curse travelling through multiple generations of a Latino family so I have to say I was in from the the word go it had you at hello it did and it's about a, a little boy called Miguel who wants to become a musician but because his great 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 grandfather no his great grandfather his great grandfather was a musician who abandoned his family, that music is banned in his home, and instead everybody's well into shoes because they have a family business about shoes. It's Mexican Day of the Dead, in which, for those of you who don't know, people leave photographs of their relatives in the hope that their spirits, and offerings in the hope that their spirits will come back and visit them. He becomes convinced on this day that he is actually related to someone called Ernesto de la Cruz, and that is his missing great-grandfather, who is kind of like the Mexican Elvis in this. He's living in this family, which is probably the only example of a gynocracy in a Disney film, and his grandmother and his mother are both very out. Or in fact, everyone's anti him getting his music. Comes up with this plan, he's going to go to this guy's tomb, he's going to nick his guitar and he's going to enter a talent competition when his family see how good that he is they're going to let him play music but in stealing this guitar that belongs to a dead person he is accidentally goes into transported transported thank you mickey into the afterlife he becomes a dead person he becomes a dead person he then has to try and get back which isn't as simple as it seems because part of the deal that he strikes with his dead family is that they want him to say he won't play music and therefore he doesn't want to go back. He decides to go off and try and find Ernesto de la Cruz. This film is so charming. It's charming beyond words. It's beautifully animated. There is so much going on. It's insane how densely packed this is, what an entire world they create. What should we talk about? Miguel, he's just lovely, isn't he? When so many Disney little boys are annoying shits. You look at someone like Peter Pan. Cunt. Yeah. (laughs) Miguel is so charming, isn't he? (laughs) Non-cunt. I think it's got some really interesting female characters. You could say that the women in it are somewhat joyless, but actually they're incredibly powerful, strong women who look after themselves and who run their families with rods of iron. And actually... 
they are kind of joyless but explains to you why they're joyless and it makes them actually sympathetic characters they're not the big bad witches they are women who have a reason for feeling the way that they feel while he's there he teams up with a character called Hector who is played by Gail Garcia um, oh gosh, it's getting awfully hot in here. <laughs> and basically, actually, it reminds me of Up because what it's about is an old man and a young boy taming up in an attempt to contact their childhood hero that turns out not to be the hero that they thought they were, which is basically the plot of Up. And also, it's, it's about death, which again is the plot of Up. So I was all about this. It's got a tremendous psychic. I think Disney discovered at some point, or, or Pixar discovered, that the best thing you can do with a psychic is make them not talk. Like the chicken in Moana. Moana. In fact, the dog, Dante, kind of reminds me of the chicken in Moana in that he does look like he's had a recent head injury and his tongue just hangs out of the side of his mouth. He's incredibly charming. They have a shitload of fun with Frida Kahlo. Oh, my God, <laughs> the tiny Fridas. It's just tremendous. And, in fact, there is a lot more sort of Mexican celebrities in it went down a bit of a Wikipedia wormhole when I thought that perhaps the wrestler was actually a real person. It's really funny, and a lot of the jokes are sort of old-school jokes, but the timing, the timing in this is so great. There's a bit where when he first turns up and a guy who's... They're all skeletons in the afterlife, and his drawer drops open and it just drops off. Yeah. Which is like a really old-school joke, but the timing is so good. It reminded me a lot of Beetlejuice. Yes. Which is one of my favourite films. Yeah. It's amazing, and it is all like... It's it's pretty dark humour, actually. Yeah, and the the what-did-I-miss joke at the grand finale when there's like they're in a stadium and all this stuff kicks off and and then some guy comes back with his hot dog it's just what did i miss it's it's such an old joke but it's the timing is so smart that when they had the nuns on the accordions and there's the guy in the audience just dancing to it that was crackingly funny but also it has some incredibly touching moments one where hector raises a glass to the dead cowboy He's not a cowboy, but for all extents and purposes, he is in this. Which was a moment so beautiful that I actually went to find a gif of it, found one didn't exist, so made one, because it needs to exist. She taught herself how to gif. And then the moment at the end when Coco, who this film is named after, who is actually his... It's Miguel's grandma. Great-grandma. His grandma is the little round one with the shoe. It's his great-great-granddad. It's his great-granddad earlier. Yeah, see, many generations where he sings her a song and she starts singing it back to him. She has Alzheimer's and he manages to reach her with a song. Actually made me cry, which is the first time that that's happened in any Disney film that we've watched and it's pretty rare. You okay, hon? Honestly, it's like one of the loveliest things I think they've ever put in a Disney film. I cried about six times during this <laughs> Well, I mean, if Hannah cried once, then yeah. Yeah. You, know, you do the maths. Yeah, it's brilliant. I've got nothing bad to say about this film at all. Mick? I loved it. I thought it was great. I want to watch it again. I will watch it again. I love. It is definitely one that transcends the generations watching it as well. I can see it as a proper family film. Yeah. It's really good, Jen. You missed out. Sorry, Jen. Well... Sorry. Well, what score are you giving it? I, of course, I'm going to give it five. Five what? Five tiny Frida Carlos coming <laughs> out of something that looks like a vagina that's on fire. <laughs> well done, Disney. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.